good judgment seeks balance in progress. Lack of it eventually finds imbalance and frustration. The record of many decades stands as proof that our people and their government have, in the main, understood these truths and have responded to them well in the face of threat and stress. But threats, new in kind or degree, constantly arise. Of these I mention two only. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military establishment. Our arms must be mighty, ready for instant action, so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. Our military organization today bears little relation to that known of any of my predecessors in peacetime, or indeed by the fighting men of World War II or Korea. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. Dwight D. Eisenhower is a president that when I first learned about the American system of government, I associated purely with the milquetoast decade of the 1950s. But as I grew older, I realized he was actually quite special. A war hero who, decades before terrorism would wreak havoc, before arms were transported across the world, was warning Americans about the dangers of the military-industrial complex. I suddenly realized that this man who seemed so incredibly boring was wise, and it was hidden underneath a quiet, stilly exterior. I grew to like Ike myself during my college career, where I learned about the role he played during World War II. I can honestly say now that Ike is my favorite United States president, and hopefully when I'm done explaining why, he'll be one of your favorites too. This is God's Favorites, a history podcast. Dwight D. Eisenhower, Episode 1. Dwight Eisenhower is actually a man of meager beginnings. He was born in Denison, Texas, to a family of Pennsylvania Dutch heritage. The name Eisenhower, with the spelling that we know, was actually more German in its origins. E-I-S-E-N-H-A-U-E-R. But somewhere within his family's history, the name became more anglicized. To Eisenhower. H-O-W-E-R. Ike's mother, Ida, was born in Virginia and grew up as a member of the Lutheran Church. She would eventually convert to another faith later on and become a Jehovah's Witness. One of the great tragedies in Ida's life was chauvinism. She was a brilliant child and kind, but her family believed that girls should not be students, and she was instead required to memorize religious scripture and learn how to be a homemaker. Regardless of these difficulties, Ida would eventually become a teacher and follow her family to Kansas, where she would meet David Jacob Eisenhower. They were total opposites. David was harsh and judgmental, per Dwight's own recollections. He often had violent outbursts, but Ida was smart. She learned that flattery was the way to overcome her husband's temper and stubbornness. She would feign ignorance often when completing tasks as opposed to flat out asking David to avoid refusal. If she flattered him, he would often do the job without arguing. Eisenhower was an engineer, and Dwight spoke of him as a 
strict taskmaster. Despite his education, he had to work extra jobs to meet the demands of a growing family of boys. Dwight did refer to his father once as breadwinner, Supreme Court, and Lord High Executioner. It's a family that many Americans would hold up as the romanticized high ideal of a working class family trying to improve in life. It was, in reality, a very hard life. With Ida and six boys left to take care of their home on Southeast 14th Street in Abilene, Kansas. Ida was notorious for her cures for home ailments that included giving her boys sulfur and molasses, as well as frequently making them eat gunpowder. The family also had one unopened bottle of whiskey for medicinal purposes. It was not to be touched, except in catastrophe. The Eisenhowers had seven sons. One, Paul, died in infancy. Despite different names, each of the boys were called Ike. To avoid confusion, each Ike was given an identifier. The two that most people know as Ike's older brother, Edgar, was called Big Ike, and Dwight was affectionately called Little Ike. Eventually, Dwight would be the only one to retain that nickname. Despite having to maintain good grades and do a lot of work in the house, the Eisenhower boys had time to run through the forest and have fun. In 1898, Dwight finds a role model in the form of a man named Bob Davis. The Abilene resident was a well-known hunter and trapper who was also very popular for his back-to-nature skills. Davis didn't seem to mind the young boy who wanted to follow him around the woods, and he taught him how to be a good shot. Dwight became a skilled hunter. Davis also taught the young boy how to play poker, a skill he most likely didn't alert his parents to. Dwight was incredibly skilled at counting cards, a practice frowned upon, and he also learned how to win games of high-risk level. And that is a skill he will take with him for the rest of his life. It's so easy to fall into the trap of romanticizing America back in the day, but the Americana upbringing of Eisenhower definitely had a boys-will-be-boys feel to it. The roughhousing amongst his brothers was the stuff of legend, and likely why their mother fed them such bizarre concoctions like the sulfur and molasses and gunpowder. The medicinal cure was most definitely not enough for an accident in which Dwight accidentally gouged out the eye of his brother, Edgar. Although Eisenhower said he felt remorse for this turn of events, it didn't appear to slow down their hijinks or fighting. But the romanticized summers of skinny dipping and laughter were also darkened by the rain clouds of their father's violent temper. He would anger quickly, and in one incident, Edgar was beaten with a strap so badly that Dwight grabbed his father's arms. His father flung Dwight to the floor and asked if he too wanted a beating. Dwight responded to his father timidly that he would not be a dog that way, so why a boy? Dwight would never categorize his father as abusive, only a stern disciplinarian who wanted his children to succeed, Though Dwight would occasionally get red-faced angry and threw temper tantrums as a child that were so loud the neighbors would come to check and see if he was okay, he never really got violent. He would later say he learned patience from his mother. The boys loved Ida and frankly preferred her. 
Ida knew each of her son's individual personalities and guided them gently, also recognizing the closeness of Edgar and Dwight and encouraged their friendship over rivalry, but they, of course, seldom listened. The two often frequently fought, and Edgar would remind Dwight that he was the reason he only had one eye. The two would try to beat each other in everything, from career to money to sports, and author Colodesta notes that the rivalry would only end with death. Once, at age 66, Dwight was asked about Edgar, and Dwight laughed in his old age and said, I can still lick him. Dwight loved sports in the wilderness, and his physical fitness made the Navy his first choice. He had suffered a terrible knee injury playing football at Abilene High School and developed a subsequent affection, but he refused to let the doctors amputate his leg. Dwight worked at a creamery until he was 20 years old. He wanted to go to the Naval Academy, but the Navy told him he had aged out of consideration. So, he applied for the Army, West Point, and was accepted in 1911. Ida, a practicing Jehovah's Witness, begged Ike not to go to war, but she was unable to convince him. Likely at his wife's urging, his father offered to pay for him to study medicine at the University of Michigan, but Ike refused again. He was excited for the challenges presented by the school, but he would soon learn to detest the hazing at West Point. After he climbed the train from Abilene to West Point, Ida returned home from the station, collapsing in tears. West Point has a long-storied role in U.S. military history. It was at West Point's fort that Benedict Arnold would be discovered to be a spy for the British running away from Alexander Hamilton's bullets after his treachery was uncovered. The list of alums reads like a who's who of American wars, specifically the American Civil War, where men like Ulysses S. Grant, George McKellen, William Tecumseh Sherman, Robert E. Lee would walk the campus together, only to be bitter enemies fighting on opposite sides of the war. In its history, West Point was known also as much for its hazing of plebes as it was its graduates. Older students would unleash hell on the first-year cadets. Food frequently was poisoned. Wild animals unleashed in dormitories. Dormitories, by the way, that were designed specifically to be inhospitable. To survive your first year at West Point was almost enough. Only a few chances at leave were granted after two years. So you had two years of cadets being drilled in hellish heat in the summer and ice cold in the winter with no comforts. Now there has been some reform to West Point's curriculum, but it is still notoriously difficult for all who cross its campus. Eisenhower was just one in a sea of many gray uniforms. The anonymity brought by a uniform beaten into the heads of the cadets that they were nothing special. The military could beat the individuality and joy out of many a man in an effort to weed out the weakest. Here's the thing, though. Eisenhower buckled down and went through with it. He would come out on the other end or die trying because Eisenhower had grown up with six brothers and he reasoned that his consistent brawls with Edgar had prepared him more for military life than most. And he was absolutely correct. 
Thankfully, his time there wouldn't be all brawls or fighting for the respect of upperclassmen. Eisenhower would make a lifelong friend. Roommates, called wives by the upperclassmen at West Point, could make or break any plebe. Eisenhower lucked out when he got Paul Alfred Hogston from Wichita, Kansas. They brought out the troublemaker in each other, but for the most part, they helped each other survive. Hoxton would prove to be one of the main constants in Eisenhower's life. Hoxton was a stellar athlete playing baseball, basketball, as well as running track. He even broke the school's record for high jumping. Unfortunately, injuries would sideline both Hoxton and Eisenhower. Letters back home showed Hoxton gushing about Dwight and showed that he was so happy to have someone from his home state to run around with. My roommate is Dwight Eisenhower from Abilene, Kansas, Paul wrote on July 30th, 1911. What followed was a series of letters showing not only Paul's growth, but Dwight's. A letter written in 1912 showed Dwight finally lettering in football. Dwight got his A last night, Paul wrote, seemingly glad that his roommate would no longer steal his sweater to wear around campus. Another letter penned by Paul shows his investment in Dwight's personal life after he was busted courting two women at the same time. Paul wrote, Dwight is in an embarrassing predicament just now amid the opportunities of two extremely fascinating femmes. He met them last summer and managed to make them both think he was crazy about them. Unknown to him, they were very good friends, and when they got together to count scalps at the end of the season, they both found Dwight's clinging, as they had supposed, to their respective girdles. They then put their heads together, and this week he received a pair of letters in which each volunteered to come up for the same dance. He looked wild and hunted for a day or two, but thinks he has solved the difficulty for now, and though still rather pale and wane, his appetite is returning. And then... One last interesting tidbit, considering that Dwight himself would one day be a Republican president. Hoxton explained to his interested family that he wasn't really aware of any political interest among the recruits. You see, we are classed with criminals, idiots, and women when it comes to voting. I, I must take that back about the interest, though. Dwight is interested. I never knew anyone with such a strong... And at the same time, causeless and unreasonable dislike for another as he has for Roosevelt. Roosevelt would end up losing the election to William Howard Taft. The West Point class of 1915 would be known forever as, quote, the class the stars fell on. Not a reference to fate, rather a reference and acknowledgement to how many generals the academy created. Of the 164 graduates in this class, 59 attained the rank of general. Two of those men reached the rank of five-star general of the Army. Two were four-star generals, seven three-star lieutenant generals, 24 two-star major generals, and 24 one-star brigadier generals. The stars fell on this class, quite literally. Eisenhower, despite his continuous involvement in pranks and drama, would flourished despite racking up demerits alongside his roommate. He was well-known to West Point administrators. He was, however, more interested in athletics and women than academics, once playing against future Olympic gold medal recipient Jim Thorpe at a football game. 
Eisenhower knew of Thorpe's reputation as an incredible athlete and thus tried to take him out foolishly, injuring himself in the process mildly. Thorpe was not phased by Eisenhower in the slightest, though he would claim to remember him when the pair would meet later in life. Dwight was a troublemaker from pranks dancing questionably with young ladies, to stolen breaks, to smoke cigarettes, and even late-night poker games, which were forbidden. But he was charming and likable. He had suffered through several injuries, including a knee injury sustained while riding a horse. Despite the challenges and his own youthfulness, he had survived West Point. Eisenhower spent time also playing wingman for his roommate, History does have surviving letters from Dwight written to a young woman to inquire about her interest in Hogsden, featuring an almost stream-of-consciousness letter-writing style, interrupting his letter once to hang on my cigarette just went out, as if he was having a conversation, only for him to return with, oh, lit up once more, let's go on. He continued by asking her thoughts on Hogsden, the good-looking football player, He also maintained contact and rivalry with his brother, even challenging him to a boxing match for no good reason. Upon his return home, Eisenhower took up with a young woman named Gladys, whose father once famously said that Eisenhower wouldn't amount to a thing. Dwight proposed after a summer romance, but Gladys wanted to be a musician, so she paused the ideal matrimony to pursue her own career. But the relationship remained amorous in correspondence. It was passionate, but that passion was destined for nowhere, finally fizzling out despite Dwight's insistence that she was the only woman for him as he began his career stationed in Texas. It was an October night when a woman held Dwight to come meet her friends who were in town visiting from Colorado. And that's where Eisenhower met Mamie Dowd in a white dress the youngest daughter of John Dowd, who had always wanted sons but had grown to love his little Mamie. The obvious attraction was not well disguised, even though many warned Mamie of Ike's history of trying to court multiple women at the same time. Mamie didn't care in the slightest, and she couldn't hide her emotions despite urgings of caution. She would often frequently reject Ike's request for dates, though, appearing to have learned how to play hard to get from some of her classmates. And it appeared to work until her father told her to stop toying with Dwight, that he would get tired and leave her. By Valentine's Day in 1916, Ike asked Mamie to marry him. They initially wanted to wed in November of 1916, but a great war unfurling in Europe had rendered it impossible for American neutrality. A great war at the forefront of the American consciousness. Between the sinking of the Lusitania, a transatlantic passenger liner from the Cunard Line that was carrying supplies to fight the Germans, and the discovery of the Zimmermann telegram, a communication from the German government proposing an alliance between their country and Mexico, anti-German sentiment was at an all-time high. On April 4, 1917, the U.S. Senate voted 82-6 to to declare war against Germany. Eisenhower had been toying with potential career paths in the military and decided to pursue the Army's newest division of aviation, the Army Air Service. 
Despite his attachment to Mamie, Eisenhower kept in touch with one female acquaintance, Ruby Norman. Norman and Eisenhower both insisted their relationship was entirely platonic, good friends. Their correspondence does echo this. Dwight would write to Ruby explaining how excited he was to get in on the ground floor, no pun intended, of course, of flying. He also told her he would be making more money to support his new wife. But aviation was new and therefore not exactly the safest. The military purchased planes and would almost immediately lose them in crashes. Mamie and her father urged Dwight to reconsider the dangerous career path he had chosen, and he did eventually leave the aviation field, choosing instead to work with tanks. Dwight contracted malaria and became incredibly ill, and he recovered but returned to work. He would begin a career as a military policeman in Texas, where in addition to dealing with soldiers who got in drunken brawls, he got incredibly close to the Mexican border at a time where relations with Mexico were incredibly violent and heated. There never seemed to be a dull moment. Ike would be shot at once during a bar brawl. He was nearly hit. Shortly after this excitement, he was deployed to the border to train troops following the execution of 16 American mining engineers by Pancho Villa. But the entire time, Europe was in the background beckoning. The Great War, World War I as we now know it, was a hellish landscape of new modern warfare. It was a war that combined attrition, throwing body after body with no care, and new technology, gas, U-boats, aviation. It was a nightmare that would destroy a romanticized narrative of war. War is hell, but this war, this war was beyond description in its horror. It's probably lucky then that instead of being shipped abroad, Dwight was shipped to Kansas and then Maryland with the 65th Engineers, where he spent his days learning about tanks, even getting to play battlefield with the machines at the historic Civil War battleground in Gettysburg. Mamie gave birth to their first child, Dow David. But Eisenhower was not there for the birth. He found out via a letter from his mother. He immediately wrote a letter to Mamie stating how proud he was of her, her strength, and that he was so excited to meet, quote, it, not knowing the child's name. Dowd David would be called Ike at first, keeping with family tradition. It would eventually be lengthened to Icky. Dwight would finally meet his son at Christmas and was immediately smitten, especially when the young boy very strongly took his father's finger in his hand. As for the war in Europe, the armistice would keep Dwight from making the trek across the sea. It would have been a good thing by most circumstances, but Dwight seemed disappointed. He hadn't a clue that he had actually cemented his future with his training with tanks. Dwight just knew he enjoyed working with tanks and even gave Mamie a joyride in one. Things seemed promising, but in 1918, Icky developed a fever that was a prelude to a battle with chickenpox. This also coincided with a pandemic of Spanish flu that caused mass casualties as well as conspiracy theories and arguments over masking. You see history. 
Humans do not change. They do not change. Eisenhower would be responsible for quarantining sick soldiers as well as creating a makeshift morgue. It was a catastrophic pandemic that dampened the American spirit. And the pox, the chicken pox, would be the first of several illnesses Icky would encounter. In 1919, George S. Patton, the famed general of history, would return with the tank fleets from France, and the U.S. Army would encounter a problem. Patton was quickly called to Washington, D.C., and that left command of the 304th Tank Brigade, the future of America's army, to Eisenhower, the young boy who had been driving tanks through Gettysburg for fun. Patton did not know who Eisenhower was, but this, of course, would change. There was no significant highway system or infrastructure in the U.S. at this time, and thus the movement of tanks was proving to be frustrating for all. In 1919, a convoy of 81 tanks would have to traverse the country, and Eisenhower thought this sounded like a blast. He was paired up with Major Serrano E. Brett, who had proven indispensable to Patton in France. The pair would organize and see the tanks safely to San Francisco, all the while American auto producers opted to join the caravan as a form of advertisement. The journey was treacherous and resulted in few miles per day. Tanks would become stuck, bridges would give way. It would take 62 days to get to San Francisco. But it would teach Ike something about America that he would take with him to the office of president. Necessity is the mother of invention. And it would be on this trip that Ike would begin envisioning an intercontinental highway system to ease military transport as well as civilian travel. Eisenhower was granted leave for one month to go home to Mamie and be with his son. It was a glowing bookend to this decade and this chapter of Ike's life, but war and personal tragedy lay ahead. God's Favorites is a bi-weekly history podcast. Sources for today's episode include AmericanHeritage.com and the article My Roommate is Dwight Eisenhower by Edward M. Kaufman. The NationalArchives.gov Specifically, Eisenhower's farewell address in 1961. The Eisenhower Foundation's family website. Carlo Desta's book Eisenhower, A Soldier's Life. Thanks to everyone who is donating to our Patreon. That money goes to distribution costs such as streaming, music licensing, books, and all those other costs that are associated with podcasting. You can join in the conversation over at Facebook by looking for God's Favorites, a history podcast, or finding me on TikTok at Melissa Fairlady, where this whole thing basically started. We'll see you in two weeks when we get to talk about World War II, which is one of my favorite topics. We'll see you next time, friends.